You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 523 for May 27th, 2020. On today's show, keyboardist Henry Hay. This show exists because listeners become members. Please become one today for $5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll get bonus shows, early access, and more. That's thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks. Henry Hay and his band Fork have a new album. It's called Four. Hey, welcome back to the jazz session. Hello. It's great to have you here, man. We uh, The last time you were on, uh, it was to talk about the band Rudder, which was uh, another collaborative project, that one with Chris Cheek and uh, Tim Lefebvre and Keith Carlock. And now we're talking about uh, a really great album called Four by your band Fork, which as a child of 80s Prague is like so up my alley, it's not even funny. I mean, I just, th- this is not an, an 80s Prague album, but it definitely slots in with the music that that I grew up loving very much. Uh, and so I really, really dig this record and I'm excited to, to talk to you about it. And I, maybe we can just start at the most obvious of places, which is to talk about how Fork got together. Fork got together because it, it, the crossroads of many things happening at once. Uh, Rudder was kind of on the way out because everybody was busy and it felt like we were either going to kind of readjust our stylistic approach and recommit, or we were going to call it. And it, it turned out to be the latter and everybody was just, the guys were too busy and, and interest wasn't at the highest. And at the same time, Michael League of Snarky Puppy was at a place where Snarky had not yet arrived and he was feeling the stress and fatigue of dealing with the band on the road all the time. And we had said, let's do something together and let's get some guys and we'll just play some gigs at the 55 bar. That's kind of how Rudder started the same kind of way. It wasn't the 55 bar, but it was let's play a little club in New York and see what happens. And that's exactly what happened. And we played some gigs. It felt good. We started writing some music. We made a record and away we go. And then the rest is a, is a bunch of different little moves along the way. Did you have any kind of overarching musical philosophy? I mean, it's it from your description right there, it sounds like maybe the answer is no. But had you guys talked about, like, here's some stuff we want to explore, here's some sound areas we want to slot into, or was it literally like everybody just bring something and we'll see what happens? Well, I, I don't think that we wanted it to be a fusion band in the traditional sense of sort of self-indulgent fusion. I've never really been drawn to that, and Mike was not really into it, and Adam Rogers was our guitarist for the first album was not really into it either although adam certainly has all the all the muscles to play circles around everybody else in the band 
Yeah, we wanted it to be a little bit more about songs and and have some bluesy, groovy bits to it. And it's had some of those. We just wanted it to feel like good, good songs and uh, be vehicles for us to, to be vibey and have fun. I mean this in the most complimentary possible way, but each time I've listened to four, I have also found myself wishing I could watch the quirky detective show for which it was the soundtrack, um, because I think it <laughs> it stands as its own uh, on its own as an album full of interesting music that you can listen to, and at the same time, it conjures so many images in my brain that I always feel like, man, this is like all of the theme music to the best show that never existed. And it makes me very nostalgic for a thing that wasn't even there. <laughs> and I, I can't exactly explain that, but I really love it. Well, thank you so much. It's, it should be explained that four is quite an evolution from our first record with Adam Rogers. And you asked about how we formed, uh, but what we became is something entirely different in a way because uh, Adam couldn't, tour with us and then adam was the first member to change and then eventually we got to a point where mike was busy with snarky puppy and bocante and i sat him down and i said mike you have to let us at least sub your chair off sometimes and that quickly became mike couldn't do it and we moved on to kevin scott and chris and i were becoming mad scientists about it and i think that that's how we arrived at this latest album we're both we're both nerds and we like nerdy things and we grew up with video games and we grew up with tv shows and all that stuff and certainly it's fair to say that this some of the same kinds of sounds that i gravitated toward in my toward in my participation in boomish with zach danziger and timo fave show themselves with fork a little bit you were right to uh you were right to to guess about about the theme show that never existed because if it feels like that then i think we've achieved the right thing
so I didn't ask the interstitial question about uh, you described how the band formed, but I didn't follow up with the natural follow up, which is who's in the band now. And before we go any further, we should probably talk about that so that when they come up in the course of the interview, people will know who we're talking about. So will you tell us who makes up Fork at this moment? Yeah, well, Fork for the last uh, for the last two and a half years uh, in touring has been Kevin Scott on the bass who you might've heard with Wayne Krantz or Donnie McCaslin or Jimmy Herring and Chris McQueen on guitar. He's been with us since the second album who you would have heard with Snarky Puppy or uh, Bocante or Liz Wright and Jason Thomas, who is the drummer. He's always been with us. Chris and I tend to push each other quite a bit towards the crazy sound zone. Tell me more about that. Tell me about experimenting with sound and how you even go about it. I mean, how are you, what is your process of discovery and experimentation? Well, I'm a fan of sounds of, of lots of eras, and I love the sound of Italian spaghetti westerns, and I love the sound of synthesizer music and some of the dorkiest synthesizer music and some of the most classic, you know, Vangelis and Wendy Carlos music. So all of those sounds certainly play for me. And, and so sometimes I might come up with a particular sound or a particular riff, and Chris would would add something to it that might be a stylistically unlikely partner to it, but it makes a great foil. So he, he's as much of a sound guy as any guitarist I've ever met. He uses his pedals and his the way he plays in unique ways. So I feel like we, we try to find complementary sounds for each other. Uh, and this is not to say that the rest of the band doesn't participate with sounds, but I would say that Chris and I do more in that zone just because we, we tend to like strange things. And I'll hear some strange sound on a commercial and I say, what is that? What is that sound? And I'll send Chris a video and I'll say, did you hear this crazy thing? You know, and uh, we just get off on that stuff, you know, and it, it inspires the way that we work. Let's take a quick break from the show to remind you about membership. I've been making this show for 13 years now, more than 500 episodes, and I'd like to continue to do it for 13 more years and another 500 episodes. If you would like to help me in that mission, it's simple. Just become a member for $5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Five or ten bucks a month might not seem like a lot to you, and if it doesn't, that's awesome. But believe me, it is literally putting food on our table these days, which is what allows me to keep making these shows. So if you would like to have a direct impact on these shows getting made, just become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks. Now back to the episode. To my ear, and I could be wrong about this, but to my ear, there sound like there are some vintage kind of 80s uh, synth sounds on this record. Are there, first of all, I guess, are there? And then second of all, are you recreating those on modern equipment? Are you using uh, old synthesizers? How do you, how are you achieving some of those sounds? 
When we recorded, uh, there's a photo somewhere. I think it's on Facebook. I took every keyboard that I own and borrowed four more. Uh, (laughs) And I have a lot of, I have a lot of keyboards. So Wurlitzer and uh, Rhodes and Honer Pianet and Juno 60 and Prophet 6 and OB6 and my Therapsid, which is a a SID synth, which we could talk about. Um, I have a CS60 Yamaha and I have a Fender Contempo organ, which is, which was a competitor to the Farfisa, but less successful organ. And then I borrowed some synths from the great Billy J. Stein. And I borrowed a CP70 from Justin Stanton. And I made a big circle with these, like I was Keith, like I was Keith Emerson. We oh my god, things in and run them through stuff. And I'm so yeah, glad you said that because really that was fun. exactly the image I had of like you know Emerson or Rick Wakeman. You know, kind of you can't even see, you can just see the top of their head, and they're surrounded on at least three sides by like eight keyboards aside. And I mean, that's that's my era. That's <laughs> I really, really, really love that. And that stuff. was that's that's my dream is to be creating sounds in that situation where you have. You have all these tools at your disposal and not to, not to just say I'm so excited because keyboards are on, but because there are so many different colors and they all sound different and they're all unique, you know, and if you can paint the sound with those different sounds, then if you think about it creatively, it can it can be kind of a limitless play zone. Now, I recognized most of the uh, synths that you mentioned, but I don't know what a SID synth is. Will you say more about that? Okay, so... Uh, in fact, we just did a YouTube video about this on our, uh, we have a song on our album called Duck People, and we did a video where I demonstrate about the SID synth. The SID, SID is a, a stands for sound instrument device, sound interface device. I believe that's right. And SID was a chip that Commodore brought out uh, for the Commodore 64 and the Commodore Vic 20 and it, it made music and sound. It was like the arcade games of the 80s that had music chips. They had specific chips to make the sound. And eventually people figured out that you could hack into these SID chips and use them on their own and send MIDI to them. And they were full-fledged synthesizers. So that's what happened in, in, the, early, in the early 20th century, or early 21st century, or maybe it was in the 90s, um, Electron did that with the SID station. So anyway, I, when I started hearing more of this chip music, I thought that's another sound that I want to hear because it's it harkens to video games, but also it could sound expressive like a regular synthesizer with attack. And so, yes, I played a good bit of SID chip and chip sounds on this album, which is a bit different than a lot of other people, I suppose. Well, man, I feel kind of robbed because I had a Commodore 64, <laughs> but uh, I apparently missed <laughs> this part of what I could have been <laughs> could have been doing with it. Well, it's not too late. You can uh, hop on eBay and get yourself one. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I will have to edit out that part of the conversation in case my partner ever listens to this. But yes, that sounds, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I, I wanted just to focus real quick on, or not necessarily real quick, I wanted to focus on JT and Kevin uh, Basin and drums in this band because one thing you mentioned that I thought was important is that while this band might kind of harken back to older musical styles it is a very much of now and b it's not just 
making music for virtuosity's sake. Like it's about the music. And at least it sounds like that to me. And so I think those guys are really important in the grounding of the music and they do it extremely well. And so maybe you could just, if you would say a few words about them and, and kind of how they operate as a, as a rhythm section inside this group. JT is a, he's such a, a musical drummer he, and he's one of the best musicians period in regardless of instrument that I've ever worked with. He's just incredibly tasteful with his choices and he has all the facility in the world and he can play faster and louder than anybody but he chooses not to uh he chooses to hold it in reserve and he puts the groove and the appropriateness of the feel first which is really astounding there are moments that we'll be playing and and we play quite dynamically so there are moments where we're playing and he's playing so quietly in a club a 500 seat club and he's playing with his hands and then 10 minutes later, he's bashing and it's as loud as possible. But it's all it's all because it's the right choice to make. And Kevin and JT have a have a really amazing lock. And they've it's just been getting better and better. And they've really fallen into this great partnership where they play together so musically, you know, and Kevin is Kevin's got a great joyful spirit in the way that he plays. And he's really a contributor to the groove. And he you can see when you watch him play, I think that it comes from a place of joy and a place of choosing the music first rather than trying to be showy. step away from uh, Fork for a minute because you have had just a, an incredible career um, working with so many great musicians, but I wanted to talk in particular about two kind of outside of the quote-unquote jazz world projects that you've been involved in, and these were working with two of, for my mind, the great voices of the second half of the 20th and the first bit of the 21st centuries, which are George Michael and David Bowie, um, both of whom I, I dearly love. And I, so I just wanted to ask you to relate, you know, your experiences um, with them and I guess even how they came to be, because I'm always curious about, uh, you know, how people move through the, the genres, so to speak. Well, I think that any musician would say that, uh, almost all of their good opportunities happened because of relationships. And sometimes they happen because of just being in the right place at the right time. But a lot of times it's relationships. And that was certainly the case with these situations. I came to know and work with George Michael because I'd been working a good bit with the great Phil Ramone. Phil was producer and Phil was starting to work on this project for George Michael called Symphonica, which was meant to be what it became, which is an orchestral tour of George Michael music. And I had been working with Phil a lot, actually, at, at my apartment, because 
with studio budgets kind of drying up and studios being what they are, we could get the work done here. And I would do a lot of the, the work and we do things virtually and make them and have singers over and, and just track things and work here. And it was comfortable. Phil was used to coming here. So when the situation came up for George Michael, Phil to put me forward as to be the pianist and musical director and George agreed with it. And we progressed from there. And it was, it was an incredible experience because I, although I had been familiar with George's music, I wasn't familiar with how much of an astounding singer he was. He really was the best of, of any singer. He was, he was completely aware of his singing and he was always on and he, he would be self-correcting. He knew when he was, if he was ever out of tune, which was never the case. And he had such a beautiful voice. And, uh, and he was a lovely person as well. I'm so thankful for that experience. And I got the opportunity to, to record with him and to tour with him for two large tours and to be the musical director. And then the David Bowie situation was not so long after that because I had been in town and I had done some work with producer Tony Visconti via Lucy Woodward. Tony had produced Lucy Woodward's album for Verve Forecast called Hooked been a long colleague of Lucy, friend of Lucy, and I'd been, I was in her band. And so when it came time to make that record, I was included in sessions and I hit it off with Tony and Tony had called me to do some other records after that. And then he called me one spring and he said, are you around such and such dates? And I said, yeah, I think so. And he said, he said, you're going to want to, you're going to want to be available for this. And I, he wouldn't say anything more. And I didn't necessarily have any suspicions about what it might be, but it turned out to be Bowie and it turned out to be album work for the next day. And that was the album that was kept secret. I think we kept the secret for a year and a half, maybe two years, only eight or 10 people knew the people who were working on the record and a couple at the studio. That record came out and, and I started to form a relationship with David because I would have overdub sessions at Tony's studio and David and I would kind of hit it off and he was very funny and very cordial and then uh kind of after we had done some extended track sessions for the next day i got a call from his manager some months later and said can you come to my office and meet with me and i thought i wonder what this is you know david's working on a on a theater piece and he thinks that you're the guy to to do it and i said well i'm flattered and and of course yes i didn't even ask what it was about you know, so <laughs> that's uh, that's how I came to work on on his theater piece, Lazarus. And uh, I worked very closely with him. He would come over to the apartment and he would sit on the couch. And that's how he wanted it. I offered to go to his office and I said, I can bring a mobile rig and we work at your place. He said, no, let's work over at your house where we can drink coffee and chat. <laughs> and that's exactly how he was. He just... I live in a walk-up and he didn't want any extra help. He wanted no attention. He just wanted to come over and sit down and, and work. And he was, he was an incredible human being. Well, that's uh, a ridiculous and amazing story. <laughs> that's totally incredible. Well, I'm, I'm, I think myself very, very lucky every time I think about that story. So, and, so, Let um, me ask you, when you're working, whether it's with people who have the name recognition of George Michael or David Bowie, or with anyone, when you, when it's not your project, what's your role? I, I know in, in several of these, you were also musical director and arranging and that, that kind of thing. But as a player, what do you think of as your role? I mean, is it to be like 
Henry, hey, because they hired you because of who you were? Or is it to say, you know, what is it you need this to be and then to be that? I'm always curious about how people kind of fit their distinct musical personalities into somebody else's work. Uh, Well, that's an interesting question because it depends on who you're working for and what the scope of the project is. I've been fortunate to work on some films for some film composers. And if I'm meant to be uh, playing piano with an orchestra, then I'm not supposed to be really injecting too much of my personality into that role, but rather just playing exactly what's on the page. You know, if it's some kind of session where we're supposed to play in a certain groove style or something like that, then that might that might have license for a bit more of my personality. Uh, if it's if it's a singer songwriter record and they call me specifically, then then I feel like that's a place where I can put more of myself into it. And you could try little bits, and and it, it's different with every single and every artist. But uh, I think I think the important thing that I've learned is to try to keep track of of what their vision is because there can be a limit with how much you might inject yourself into a project before someone says, okay, it's not your record. But I think that playing kind of faceless doesn't serve you either because people, people call you because they want something that you're going to offer to it that somebody else isn't going to offer. Hopefully at this point, I'm getting calls that are, they're calling for me and not just keyboard player. It's not as much fun to be called to just be keyboard player. Yeah, it sounds like a fairly delicate process. I mean, it, you it sounds like you really have to be completely aware of what you're there for uh, and, you know, kind of really l- listening. I think awareness is key. It doesn't have to be nerve wracking, but awareness is important and figuring out you can fairly quickly get the temperature of the producer. And there was a record that I was working on. It was a small record right before we all went into hibernation here. The producer I was working with wanted some specific stuff. And I sort of, I started with exactly what the producer asked for. And then it felt like things were loosening up. And then I kind of departed from that a bit and it was well received. But I started because I didn't know this producer and I didn't know the artist and I wasn't what they were looking for. I wasn't going to walk into a room of people that I hadn't played very much with and start putting, trying to put my stamp on it. <laughs> have you, have you thought about um, using this Commodore 64 synth on your acoustic singer songwriter record? <laughs> right. Or just, or just playing too much or playing the wrong thing or asserting some strong emotional stuff. That's not necessarily warranted because you think it works better than what's being asked for. Sometimes that can work. And sometimes it backfires. So sometimes it's good to wade in a little bit. Let's take one more break to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible, starting with the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and Dave Rabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him to do your voiceover work at hearchucknow.com. Follow the jazz session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at thejazzsession. If you'd like to keep up to date with my podcast, poetry, and more, please subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. You can go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the episode.
to come back to Fork, uh, this is a band that has had the chance to be on the road quite a lot, and I'm curious about what Fork's music is like live, um, what the live experience is like, and and how the songs might might or might not transform on stage. We tend to, we have historically composed fairly uh, completely in the studio, and that's to say that the structures are spelled out and we work hard on the songs and we work hard on the sounds and we try to make the mix interesting. And then when we get live, we try to figure out spaces where there can be opportunities for emotional flexing. And by emotional flexing, I mean, maybe a solo can extend or maybe a mood can change or maybe a, some kind of breakdown or dip in energy could happen so that you can have a place to go so that you have you have some sort of dramatic shape to the song and solos and and uh and then that stuff that stuff happens starts to happen naturally unless there's a, a composition that feels like we really wrote ourselves into kind of a rigid place and then we might discuss ways to change that but a lot of times it happens naturally and actually what's happening now is the oldest songs in the book that we are still playing songs from the first record have transformed over time, you know, and stuff that has happened over the years with happy accidents now become maybe a place we might go together, you know? That's kind of the beauty of playing in a band and playing with the same guys for so long. You could start to gather this common unspoken language. Obviously, uh, as we were talking, there's no touring going on or anything, but um, I'm curious about what might be coming up for fork obviously we can't predict the future in terms of what the social situation will look like but what what do you guys have planned musically at least uh well i mean our touring situation was that we had planned and on the books we did have u.s touring more european touring including reaching into new territories croatia and uh, scandinavia and also appearances in japan that stuff was all booked now it's being pushed till later this year and we'll see if that happens. I would imagine that we'll make another re- record, but we haven't toured this record to its to its extent yet because the record only came out in the fall, in October. So we would have been playing all through this spring in US and Europe and Japan. And we the album was released in Japan on the Japanese imprint. So I think we're still going to keep playing this and, and bring this to people. In the meantime, certainly there are thoughts of writing more music, but... I don't know that we'll record in the immediate future. Certainly there will be another record of some sort. And we have some kind of crazy plans, but I'm not quite sure how we're going to realize them. We'll see. (laughs) Well, now I'm totally intrigued. (laughs) (laughs) Was any of this music worked out on the road for like previous tours? I mean, did this, did any of this stuff kind of come out of things that happened while you were playing or is it all you guys maybe individually or, or collectively sitting down and saying, okay, now we're working on a new piece of music. Well, this latest record uh, was really the product of people writing individually. In fact, I think that I'm a, I'm a terrible writer and Chris McQueen would probably say the same and that we end up throwing a lot of stuff away because we have self-loathing and trying to get past that. And, uh, <laughs> but I've, I think it's common with writers sitting down and saying, oh, this sucks, this sucks. And we were in the situation where we were trying to write. And finally, I got on a plane and I flew to Austin to Chris's house. And I, I said, let's get together and let's try to 
work on this stuff because I have some things I think they suck and we can look at your stuff. And Chris is saying, yeah, I got stuff that sucks. And, <laughs> and we both got together and we told each other that our stuff didn't suck so bad and maybe we could fix things. And that happened and we, and we got it together and quickly assembled a lot of music for the record. And Kevin Scott had sent something on to us and we worked on that and JT sent something on and, and I had a little scrap of something and JT had a scrap of something. We put those together and those became a bonus track, which is Japan only release. And actually that one's quite eighties, quite, quite eighties. So when you hear that one, you'll, you'll think even more about your eighties period. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we haven't been writing so much on the road. Part of it is that because we all live in four different cities, so we don't, the times of getting together for local gigs don't happen anymore. In fact, the only time we play in New York city is when we're on a tour. And we incorporate it in a tour. That's sort of the peril of, of that situation. My guest has been Henry Hay, and the uh, latest album by his band Fork, which is F-O-R-Q, is called Four, which is F-O-U-R. Uh, Henry, it's uh, been a total pleasure to talk to you, and I, I really, really dig this record and, you know, everything you're involved in. Uh, I'm really glad you were here, and I wish you uh, all the best, and I hope you'll come back. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for the... Uh for the engaging and insightful interview. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five or 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to my guest this week, Henry Hay. Next week's show features another fabulous keyboard player, Eric Deutsch. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.